Hey, my name is Chris Butel and welcome to the Stories Through the Camera podcast, where we talk about the art of filmmaking, photography and storytelling. In today's episode, I'm going to be chatting to Alice Fulcher and Gregory Herdstein, the filmmakers behind the very successful independent Aussie feature, That's Not Me. In today's episode, we chat about how Alice and Gregory managed to pull off this really ambitious film for just $60,000, how a mural of Matthew McConaughey made its way into their film, and how writing in Paris for a year inspired their writing process. These guys have had a lot of success with this film. It's made its way into a bunch of film festivals, including Melbourne International Film Festival, Sydney Film Festival, and Raindance as well, and a whole bunch of other ones. I caught up with them when they were up in Sydney for Flickrfest where they were actually judging a bunch of short films and hosting a bunch of panels as well. So it was great to uh, catch them while I could. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, you can always subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you want to check out the episode show notes, watch the trailer for the film or listen to past episodes as well, a great place to do that is www.storiesthroughthecamera.com. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Stories Through the Camera podcast. Today we have Alice Fulcher and Gregory Herdstein. We uh, I just made sure I uh, got their last names right just before we hit record. And how'd I do? No. Herdstein. Herdstein. <laughs> got a long way to go in this podcasting career. We're all learning here, Chris. That's yeah. right. So I've just caught you guys. Um, you're up in Sydney uh, doing Flickrfest and uh, you have made this really cool movie together called That's Not Me. And uh, just before we start recording, you said, um, yeah, you started shooting almost back in January 2016, I think it was, a, a couple oh, of the shots. We, so. Yeah, we, we shot some of it in January 2016, but we'd actually been shooting on and off since August uh, 2015, actually. Yeah. yeah. So we kind of shot it in blocks over the course of nine months. Um, I think we started off with three days, then 10 days, then another three days. And then around this time, 2016, we were shooting... Uh, I guess three days with Isabel Lucas because mm. that was pretty much the only time we could get her was, um, yeah, when she was back to see her family for Christmas. Um, yeah, and I think we had another four or five days left. And it's, it's one of the things I think a lot of people don't realise is like how much of a journey making a feature is. I mean, we're recording this podcast in January 2018 and that's like, what, a three-year period from, you know, and I'm sure you had a year or two before you know, writing the, the piece as well. So it's such a journey, right, just to yeah, know, embark and on making a film. That's That, that three-year period is actually quite a, a relatively short amount of time because, I mean, we were just discussing before about it depends, like, if you're in the film industry or you're not, you're not in the film industry. For most people, and even us, like, three, four years is a really long time. Like, I think back to who I was then, it's a completely different person. Mm. Um and but it's actually a short amount of time i remember having a conversation with someone from the writers guild at the end of last year and they were asking that question how long did it take from script to screening we said oh about three and a half years and they were like oh that's a really short amount of time and that's just the nature of the game mm. in australia where the average is between seven and ten years to get from script to screen 
God, I hope it doesn't take that long for the next one. <laughs> the next one. Hopefully you've got enough clout of the success of this film to uh, get We want to make films cheaply and quickly. <laughs> yep. I think we'll just, we'll just go into whatever funding body and just say, don't you know who we are? Yeah. That's how it works, right? I, I, that's what I've heard. Um, <laughs> yeah, so just, I guess, taking a step back from, um, you know, the whole journey, I'd, I'd just love to hear what you guys, um, how you would summarise the film, That's Not Me, I mean, I had a lot of different feelings watching it, but what does the film mean to you guys and, and what sort of a bit of a synopsis of the film? So the film is about Polly, who's an aspiring actress uh, and she has an identical twin sister, Amy, who's also an actress, who we don't see for most of the film, uh, but Amy becomes overnight famous. So we see her success as through Polly's uh, getting recognised um, as her sister as she kind of struggles to try and catch up and make a name for herself. Uh, so we call it a feel-good film about disappointment. <laughs> um, I like that. But it's a comedy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I guess it's about the way that we compare ourselves against other people mm. uh, and track our progress against other people's lives and achievements where we need to really focus on ourselves and our own journey and realise that the end goal shouldn't be... Uh, well, the end game shouldn't be the goal that we should be enjoying the process of doing and if you don't enjoy doing the thing, then don't do it. Mm. I think there's almost like another layer to it because, uh, Alice, you play, you know, twin sisters, Polly and Amy. And, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people in their early 20s, particularly if they're wanting to be artists or whatever, they're often also comparing things to themselves. Like they sort of have this vision in their mind of where I'm going to be when I'm, you know, when I'm an adult or, you know, I'll be famous or whatever. And it's sort of like in some ways um, Polly's sister is... It's almost as if she's sort of the manifestation of all her dreams and there's it's sort of because it's played by you that you know you're playing two roles it's sort of there's an extra layer of that that I think a lot of people kind of feel that's like well this is my expectation of myself but I'm not quite there yet and I don't know I just found that really interesting. No, absolutely and and um Apparently, we're one of the most disappointed generations because of the way that reality stacks up against our aspirations and dreams. Yeah. We've, we've afforded more opportunities and possibilities than any other generation, mm. um, but we're, we're disappointed. Uh, and I think that's really sad because we've lost sight of, in some ways, what's really important and enjoyable in life, which is people, mm. uh, not achievements, even though that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. I think, yeah, there is... Uh, I think there was another element to, to the film for us, which was was getting to that that point in your lives, in your mid to late 20s, when you do start to realise uh, that thing that I thought I was going to do, that may actually not happen. And what do I do with that? And with who that am not, I? Yeah. That, yeah and who am I if, I, if, if that doesn't happen? And um, so I think there's elements of, of that coming to terms with that. And yeah, there's also, I think... There's like a Dostoevsky story, the the double, which I think was yeah. made into a film by Richard Ayo, Ayo. Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, yeah, and it's a similar oh, sort yeah. of thing of like this double comes up out of nowhere, mm. who's all of a sudden doing all the things, and that um, that the main character wants to do, and I think I've kind of always had a fascination with twins, mm. with all the short films that I've made. My graduating film was about kind of a similar sort of thing, but more of like a magic realism. Uh, a story where a man wakes up uh, having to be told that he's just had a brain tumour removed and the tumour is actually the tiny body of his identical twin that his head swallowed in his mother's womb and then the tumour starts growing outside of his body and becomes like this sensation and all of a sudden he's left on the sidelines watching this grotesque tumour become amazing. more popular than him. 
So <laughs> sounds like either a Rick and Morty episode or a David Cronenberg film. It's definitely yeah, a bit of I'll, a Rick and Morty about yeah, it. I would like to see that if if if, if the tumor was a pickle. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I'm a pickle Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so right. it is. It is all of those 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 kinds of things of of of, of the idealized self as 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 well as um, just twinships that we that we have with people that we compete with in our heads. Yeah, and because you guys did sort of a, a writing intensive in Paris before setting out on shooting yeah. this film, is yeah. that right? Yeah, we were really lucky. We had an eight month residency at the Cité des Arts International in Paris, um, and we worked on the first draft over eight months while we were there. We were also, well, Greg was editing two shorts at the time as well, and we wrote a short film that we made over there as well uh, um, called Paris Syndrome because it's so beautiful there. You just you have to shoot something. It's yeah. Paris. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we spent a lot of the time writing the first draft and then we brought it home and worked with a script editor for a couple of months, got some feedback from just a few different people. We didn't um, overdo it and I kind mm. of feel like, I don't know, I'm starting to get a little bit more of an insight into how the process works in the funding bodies, um, particularly while we're here at Flickrfest talking to other filmmakers who've mm. been through that progress and sometimes there can be too many fingers in the pie so it's I mean we were afforded the opportunity of being able to make the film that we wanted to make because we were making it independently Mm. uh we won't be able to do that forever I know we'll have to make compromises on the next one Mm. when we're answerable to other people hopefully if we get funding (laughs) please give us funding um but yeah we've certainly uh, afforded an amazing opportunity to to write the film in Paris and to make the film that we wanted to make for our first feature and if we did fuck up to fuck up on our own terms Mm. did any of that Parisian Je ne sais quoi, uh, sort of bleed into writing at the um, film? Or? In English, please. Sorry. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. to, to being in that. <laughs> He's kidding. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's, we were just saying before, and we always feel really uncomfortable saying that because it just feels like the most privileged, pretentious thing to say is like, oh. You're we, on the right podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, we, well, we can only write in Paris. And have you tried writing in Paris? Yeah. I feel like we're real trailblazers and <laughs> that we wrote a film in Paris. Yeah. But I think reflecting on it and coming uh, toward the period now where we're starting on the next project, what trying to figure out what was it about that experience can be transferred anywhere. And I think it's... It's being in an, um, an environment that's removed from your every day, which, you know, could be half an hour down the coast or mm. it just... But it needs to be an environment that's going to stimulate you because I think a lot of our writing when we were there took place away from the, the keyboard. It was going for walks. It was meeting people, spending time with people, discussing the ideas. Um, so I think... It, it's, it's so stimulating it's, being in a new environment yeah, no matter what it is. And, uh, but I, I th- yeah, yeah. I th- Overall, though, it was being able to spend time waking up in the morning and saying, I am, I am writing, I am a writer today. This is the one thing, this is the thing that I have to do. Whereas, you know, it, we both work freelance back in Melbourne. So Alice does wedding photography. I do corporate videography. Mm. And it's hard to get up and in the morning check your emails and see you've got all of these clients it's something. hard to have the yeah. creative juices mm. going when you're worried yeah. about where's the next paycheck coming from or, or just keeping your clients happy. Yeah, and It's a different headspace, right? Yeah, it's a completely different headspace. So I think we're trying to... We've, we've tried to take some of those lessons of, of trying to cram work into certain periods and then trying to isolate other periods for, for writing. So I saw a... I think it was a Guardian article and the headline, which was amazing, was uh, this couple made a $60,000 indie film and a 
it's not shit or it doesn't it was, suck yeah, or something. Yeah, it's fair facts. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, we walked into that one, I think. Uh, but, I mean, <laughs> we did it. say that as well because we were saying um, one of the things that was just a little bit like kind of frustrating when we were talking about the film was um, – I know it's a big part of it, but it's the focus on the budget mm. and how it's not apparent when you look at the film because the film does look like a million-dollar film, which is what it would have been if we'd paid everyone rather than work on deferrals. Mm. And so I felt we felt like the film in some ways wasn't being um, assessed for the film but for the budget. And so people were like, wow, you made that for $60,000? It looks like a proper film. Like, it, mm. it doesn't look shit. And so we'd been talking... <laughs> talking about that to Carl Quinn, the, the journalist for, for The Age, and he, mm. was, he, <laughs> he used it as the headline. He's uh, hilarious. I don't know if it – in fairness to Carl, I think that was probably a, a sub It's a joke, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. that probably seized upon that as being the most clickbait-worthy headline because that was not the headline in print. It was, no. It was the headline I think on, it's on hilarious. The yeah. But on the, on the budget, though, it did um, – I remember I listened to uh, a review that we had on uh, ABC Adelaide – and it got to the end and there was two reviewers and they were both giving their scores and then one one of them said to the other one, I just can't believe it was made for $60,000 and the other reviewer was like, what? I'm giving it an extra point. So <laughs> it does have its benefits of yeah. people discussing the, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'd be really interested to chat more about, you know, once you guys got through post, what sort of the audience reaction and, and you know, sort of how you guys have navigated that media sphere because that's also like a whole other journey in and of itself. But... I guess, um, you know, going back in time once again to, you know, you'd had this in amazing experience in Paris and you've written the script, you've given it to some friends and then you're like, okay, this is a story that, that we're wanting to tell. Um, you know, what were the, the steps that you were taking, you know, and how did you, A, get that $60,000 together and, and B, sort of what were the decisions you were making where you were saying, this is where we can make compromises, this is where we're really going to, you know, invest our time and energy and money into, I mean... You know, spoilers, but Andrew O'Keefe is in your film. He's so little, great. A little clip, uh, Isabel Lucas, who you mentioned as well, and and a whole bunch of other you know great Aussie actors as well. Ooh. What was the decisions mm. you guys were were making along? you know, as you were going into pre-production? Well, none of the money went into cast. They Everyone did it on deferred contracts, including Isabel and Andrew O'Keefe. Mm. So we were very lucky in that way that they um, they liked the script and they liked our short films. So we are very lucky in that way. But um, you guys did a Trotfest short together as well, right? Um, or us, or yeah, you did. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've oh, done but not Isabel. No, 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 yeah. not Isabel. Oh, the funny thing was that um, where we shot our first short film on this railway line is near her her parents' home in okay. Hillsville, and she took us on the first walk on that railway line. Okay, so she did inspire the short film, but she wasn't. We wanted her at one point, I think, um, but mm. we ended up working with Belinda Masevsky, who's in um, That's Not Me as well, yeah. and who's sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we always wanted to make sure we were using our money wisely. So the $60,000 was an inheritance that Greg got from his grandmother um, and we blew it all on the film. Thanks. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, it, yeah. yeah, it was just a situation where when my grandmother passed away, they, they sold her family home and uh, divided up the proceeds. And mm. Yeah, and yeah, so we were very fortunate enough to have that money. But I think, yeah, it's it's been interesting talking about the financing of, a, of self-financed features with um, with people uh, uh, since we've made the film because there's nothing... I think people kind of want that prescriptive element to, mm. uh, to a story of how a film is made and there's nothing really prescriptive in, well, get a residency in Paris, <laughs> write the film in Paris, 
come home, uh, get an inheritance, and then, uh, yeah, there's nothing prescriptive about yeah. that. And one of my um, uh, close friends uh, also made a feature film that they started with the seed funding that his dad won in Tats Lotto. Like it's, yeah. and if you read up about how, I think I was reading about how the film Porno, P-A-W-N-O, um, was made. They, they just talk about going to a meeting with like uh, some rich investors and, and just saying, we're going to make a film. And the rich investors were like, oh, we like your spunk or that kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's, there's no kind of prescriptive thing. Like, uh, but what I guess is transferable and prescriptive in the way that we made it is that um, we had been part of a community that was already making mm. um, lots of shorts. Um, I'd spent a lot of time as a first AD um, making shorts and helping other people make their shorts and so that's where you go to yeah. the phone and you're like i'm calling in the favor guys exactly yeah it's and it's not necessarily going into those experiences expecting i'm going to get something back totally. out of it yeah. it's uh, there is like a mutually beneficial experiential quality to mm. it as well but that's that's how you make that sixty thousand dollars stretch even mm. further is by by calling in 10 years worth of um of favors and and knowing the people to call as well from spending time so much time on set with them but i think the the key thing that we thought of if, if we were going to be spending money more than we were comfortable with it had to multiply exponentially mm. on screen so so like, like yeah. you i mean we spent a, a good chunk of money going to la um to shoot that sequence uh, although all of Isabel's scenes we shot in Melbourne. So it was mm. just the exterior. So it was literally me, Greg and Shelley Farthingdor, the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. So that cost us a bit of money, but it's money on screen and, mm. and it really elevates the film to a bigger scale. So, and same with, you know, if a location was just a little bit more expensive than we would have liked, but it was what we wanted and we wouldn't have to dress it like the fancy bar mm. where she meets Rick Davies character or something like that. We're like, okay, well, we're only going to shoot there for half a day. Let's do it and do it properly. Yeah. And then we didn't have to dress it pretty yeah. much at all. So even though the location's expensive, the you save money on the production design. And so yeah, sometimes it's, it does make sense to go but, that place. Yeah. And it's, you just have to get really resourceful. I mm. mean, some of the stuff like if we took a really long time to find an airplane to shoot in. So, and then we ended up just shooting on half a plane at a, an aviation museum. Wow. That is resourceful. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and there's even some, there's some great moments throughout the film that are uh, just sort of gifts. Like there's, you know, when, when you do go to LA, there's that shot of you, Alice, walking um, in, in front of that Matthew McConaughey <laughs> sign. We've got a good mm. story yeah. for that one. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. But it's, yeah, it's, I guess, you know, because you did take a skeleton crew with you to LA, you could probably find those those little moments that are just perfect for the film. And not only is it perfect for the film, but it's like perfect for that moment of where your characters... It was a beautiful gift. It was the um, the day after the Oscars when Leonardo DiCaprio had just won his um, award and the original mural... That's not a that's not a mural. That's a special effect mural that you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Leonardo DiCaprio holding an Oscar and it says "Never, never give up." And yeah. we shot me walking past it, and um, it was like a little 
little piece of magic. And then when we got home again, our executive producer, Rob Potter, who's a lawyer, just it was one of the shots that he looked at and said, I'm, I'm worried mm. because it's an actual photo of Leonardo DiCaprio and an original artwork. So we needed permission from the photographer who'd taken the photo via Getty Images. The artwork, which was by this brilliant street artist called um, Mr. Brainwash in LA, and we needed the personality rights from Leonardo DiCaprio. And we got two out of three and we couldn't get Leonardo DiCaprio's personality rights. Um, so we almost got it for a couple of thousand dollars mm. and then it just fell through. And so instead, we Greg drew an original artwork of Matthew McConaughey. Oh, wow. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's a special effect. It, we didn't incredible. need the, the photographer's rights because it's not a photo, it's an original drawing and we didn't need Matthew McConaughey because it's not a photo. I was going for. Yeah. Some, some bad fan art of um, And it's pretty Matthew funny McConaughey. with Matthew McConaughey yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> so just to clarify, so it's you, you're inspired by this mural of Leonardo DiCaprio and you're like, that's awesome, that's in the film. Mm. Get back home, lawyer's like, don't know if we can use it. But you love the shot that much that you... Well, music had been composed for it at that point, so we would have had to have replaced it with something else or... It had basically been locked off at at that point and... um, So you did a VFX comp and tracked it in? Yeah. Yeah, it was... was, We were just incredibly fortunate that that it was able to be comped. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think... The, the one of the things that we didn't it was one of the few shots that we'd gotten when we were over there of a certain scale that really kind of um that really just dwarfed polly's um stature in mm. in, the, in the frame and so I, I did try and like do a quick like can i re-edit this kind of thing but there was just something about like you said that gift of of what it said and um yeah it's it's it worked out in the end because that it's it's I think it's a pretty seamless effect. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. really good. And even the um, there's sort of shots of uh, Amy, you know, on these these posters everywhere. Mm. Have, did you just have a bit of VFX experience, or did you have a crew that that knew? No, how to we do that we stuff? used a really good um, online editor who did our VFX yeah. as well, Marty Gilchrist from Puff and Post. He did a great job. Yeah, he did uh, an incredible job. And but similarly, the the billboard out the front of the Chateau Marmont in LA that was just something that we figured out on the day it wasn't something that was in the script it was just we were walking up near there and um Shelley just suggested that we do that billboard the funny thing is like (laughs) about a year later our friend um Kitty Green who made Casting Jean Bonnet for Netflix um that was on her, her name was on that billboard <laughs> on that exact later, billboard on that exact billboard that we were just like, we're like wouldn't it be funny man. if we were on there and there she is on on the billboard for real yeah that's so funny mm. so yeah talk to me just a bit about um you you'd done your pre and sort of figured out your shooting schedule and as you said you were sort of doing it in almost weekend like little blocks, so yeah, it'd be blocks. like uh, three days to start then the longest block we did was 10 days in uh Oh, when was that? October? Uh, September, September. End of September, uh, beginning of October, October 2015. 2015, yeah. And then in, just in blocks to work around people's availability. So, mm-hmm. um, for instance, Andrew O'Keefe, we'd been chasing for a while. I think we went, um, and by we, I mean our producer, one of our producers, Anna Kajevnikov, went to her his agent six times, I think, in the end. And eventually, because <laughs> like, he really liked our shorts and he really liked the script, but he's, he's doing the chase, he's doing Weekend Sunrise, where he was at the time. He's a busy man. And so eventually 
they were like, all right, you can have him for half a day on the 29th of April and that's Greg's birthday. So it was like the best birthday present ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we just worked around people's availability and, and chipped off scenes and was just ticking them off the list and it meant we're in a perpetual state of pre-production for nine months mm. looking for supermarkets and planes and airports and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then it was like the, the biggest letdown on our final shot was just us, the makeup artist and the camera uh, – Shelly and the camera assistant it was just the five of us we didn't even have sound it was just me on the plane and <laughs> you're like I think that's it, it was, yeah, we, we did say like this yeah. is a wrap but it was just so funny because at that point we didn't have extras so we had yeah. the makeup artist as an extra behind me on the plane Greg was literally sitting next to me with the shoulder so he's sitting there with the split watching my performance yeah. and then um, the camera assistant was also an extra in the background racking focus with the, with the screen as well so it was like Shelly was the only one not on screen it was a really it was a funny little last shot. <laughs> the funniest thing about that last shot is that our, um, our makeup artist, Julie, she's actually also an extra in the scene where Polly is sitting at the tram stop looking at the California poster. Hmm. She's the one standing next to it. So in my mind, in the world of the film, they both saw the poster about California <laughs> and they're both, <laughs> they're both, <laughs> they're both, yeah, they're both on, on board the plane. That's and, great. Yeah. I imagine as first-time filmmakers, you've got all this energy behind that first few days and then that, that next 10 days and particularly when you're calling in favours and stuff. Did you find that difficult to keep that momentum Definitely. Going? Yeah, I mean, we had to keep um, picking ourselves up again and finding the motivation and the enthusiasm to do it mm-hmm. again. We had an awesome continuity person, uh, Kelly Hucker, which was a, a massive gift because you kind of almost forget what the energy of the scene you were shooting two mm. months earlier was mm. uh, and we're shooting massively out of order as well. And for me as an actor, because I'm in every scene, to find that continuity of performance, it's um, – and Greg and I have our heads full of producer kind of activity as well. Yeah. So having a really good continuity person was, was really key to that. Um, but I guess you just – yeah, you just have to keep yourself motivated and excited about it. Um, it was mm. fun. It was fun going to set. It was all our friends we were working with. Mm. I think, yeah, the pre-production was not fun at all. And I think there was definitely diminishing returns of elation after each block. I was th- just saying before at um, one of the talks here at Flickrfest about how after the first three days, that, that feeling of, yeah, we shot something. We're making a feature. We're making a yeah. feature. That lasted for like two weeks. Then we shot 10 days and the feeling of elation lasted about a week and then the next block it was like a couple of days and then by the time we were shooting in January 2016 we we finished shooting that bit and it was like okay what have we got left to shoot like it was mm. almost immediately we're back into pre-production we kind of realized there's nothing to celebrate until we have gotten that final shot mm. how did, for you as a director was you know it was it tricky trying to as Alice said keep that energy and keep reminding yourself where you were in the film you know in order to you know, make sure that the end piece would come out the way you're wanting. Yeah, I had some great advice from a, a close friend of mine, Jonathan Alfterhide, who um, directed Van Diemen's Land. He um, that's a great film. Yeah, yeah, he is a like he the, that film as uh, much of an antithesis as it is to our film <laughs> is actually a tremendous inspiration for us because I met Jono uh, crewing on his. VCA graduate film which was a calling card short for the feature and he was very him and uh, Oscar Redding who uh, co-wrote Van Diemen's Land they were very much as soon as Jono finished film school it was like we're making this film this year and so that was very much an inspiration for us and he gave me this piece of advice um, 
prior to shooting is just telling me that there's no there's no unimportant scenes so mm. don't turn up to set thinking that today's going to be the easy day because that will be the hardest day of the shoot mm. and that was very and if it is an easy one then it's probably going to be weak in the film like you you need to pay attention to every mm. single scene because there should be no flab mm. yeah so i think just having that in the back of my mind throughout the the entire process of knowing that and particularly the the longer you get you get into it you don't want to uh, you don't want everything that you've done up until that point to come to naught. So you've got to, I think that in itself is its own motivating force. Um, another great piece of advice I got was from uh, Lloyd Allison Young, who plays Simon, uh, one of the flatmates. And upon reflection, he, he'd done like one, he'd done a minor part in a feature film. So I'm not sure where this was coming from and why I listened to him at all. But <laughs> he, he, his comforting words before the first day of shooting were, we're not, sh- we're not shooting the feature film tomorrow, we're just shooting some scenes. Mm. So I think um, that, that is w- actually really good advice. Yeah. Because oh, you feel so anxious yeah. thinking like, who are we to be doing a feature film? We've done yeah. a few short films and you feel really anxious and like a total fraud. Mm. So th- I think both of those two pieces of advice were kind of constantly dancing around in my head as I guess uppers and downers of, mm. of mm. there are no unimportant scenes. Oh my God, what if I fuck it up? Oh, but don't worry, we're just shooting some scenes, you know. Yeah. So it's it's, <laughs> it's this constant play, but I think... The, the well, it means you just focus on yeah. the attention to detail, going scene by scene, not mm. thinking about of it as a, as a feature, but going scene by scene, every scene is important. Mm. And uh, I think the, the main thing that I had kept on reminding myself of as a, as a I guess, uh, building on that advice was how do I get into this scene and how do I get out of it and what came immediately before and what's mm. coming immediately after that. So, yeah, it was in some ways a bit seat of the pants uh, in order to, to get those those moments in and out of a scene because I, I, there wasn't a lot of time with uh, Shelley in pre-production. So I would often turn up to sit and say, can we get this shot? And he's like, well, we don't have that piece of gear. And I'm like, okay. Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we try it? Then no to, his, to his credit, like um, Shelley was always willing to try and accommodate things that I sort of came up with mm-hmm. on the day that we'd not discussed, regardless of whether we had that necessary piece of equipment or not. But um, yeah, that it, it worked this time around, but I think I would like to have a little bit more preparation yeah. next time. Yeah, cool. Um, and so for you, Alice, you know, we've sort of mentioned this before, but you play two characters. And one of the things I was struck by when, um, you know, Amy finally comes on the scene, the, the, just the physicality of her, you know, it's not like Amy's got, um, you know, a birthmark a, a or limp. Gl- glasses or a limb <laughs> or an eye patch or, or, or a something. mole or, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. But you can just sort of tell from the physicality and it's even the vo- vocal work that, you know, these are two very separate characters you know how did you sort of as we have sort of touched on you know juggling all that pre-production stuff also keep in mind how you were going to play these two separate characters um in a few ways well I was very lucky that um our two producers Anna and Sally Sally Story uh really let me take off my producer hat two weeks before we started shooting so that I could really focus 100% and I'd been working with a drama coach prior to that as well um, but two weeks out, I was not a producer anymore. Um, low locations, nothing like that. I'm, I'm just taking that hat off. So I worked with a terrific drama coach who helped me a lot, Kate Ellis. Uh, and then... And what was the kind of stuff she was sharing with you? Just 
Well, it's about it's, yeah, like kind of building the internal worlds of the characters. But I also did that in the scripting stage too. So I'm just really benefited. I'm, I'm really lucky that I benefit from that because uh, I know the characters because we wrote them. Mm. And I'd already thought about their childhoods and how they were different and what they were like in high school and all that kind of stuff. And I think costume is really helpful uh, in helping you feel different. Uh Janine Watson, who plays the agent, she's also a terrific director as well as an actor and she was giving me some advice about, because um, I'd come home from shooting and she and Rowan, because they're a couple, Rowan and Dave, who plays Oliver, they were staying with us from Sydney and she'd give me some, while Greg was like, got to switch off my brain, she'd give me some help in the evenings and she was talking about posture and I found posture really helpful mm. um, for delineating those characters because, and you can see when they're sitting side by side on the bed is that Polly just has like the weight of her of her disappointment yeah. on her shoulders, whereas Amy is all confidence and she's so much taller and lighter. Mm. Um, she just has a totally different energy about her. And I think probably the most important thing we did to delineate those performances was that we had two different actresses playing opposite me. That's great. And yeah. they, they came to rehearsals, they were off script, they, they really committed to it and gave me these beautiful performances to, to act off, yeah. knowing that they would be cut out of the film. Like Erica, That's really generous, isn't it? That oh, it's beautiful. It. So and like, just for those at home who might not know, understand how that would happen. So basically you guys were doing locked off shots, uh, you know, when Amy and Polly are talking to each other, locked off shots, you would sort of get into costume, perform, and then you basically do a split screen composite and then you get into another costume and, and performers. Yeah, Amy and I only well. had to change it up really once. Like we did all of Polly's stuff first, mm. which was good because I'd been in that headspace for weeks at that mm. point. Uh, and then when I went and got changed, it's like when you're watching the film, you're building that sense of anticipation of meeting Amy and it was the same on set. Mm. So when I finally came out as the twin... I remember one of the camera assistants saying to me, oh, Amy, we've all been looking forward to meeting you. And it was like, yeah, that's right. She's like a little bit of a celebrity around here. Yeah. So I came in with this totally different energy and I thought it would be one of the hardest things to do when really I struggled more with Polly's performance that day. Whereas Amy came out and she was just, it's like something took over and it was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. And I guess that's a testament to the, the work we'd done beforehand to prepare, but also the actresses I was working opposite. I mean, Erica Field, who was playing Polly as the as for me mm. she still stripped down to her underpants at the same point she gave me everything she you know she was in tears she did all of that kind of stuff wow. and it was just like a beautiful selfless gift yeah and um i also think it went better because as we know amy is the better actor <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fun so, it was actually fun yeah. yeah so and did you there's not too in that sort of confrontation scene at the end there's, oh, I don't know, even know if you'd call it a confrontation scene, but in that scene where Amy and Polly finally are in the same room talking to each other, um, did you sort of have like a earpiece in that you were so you could get the timing right on the wide shots? Or no, a lot we, of it is in close up, right? Yeah, the wide shot. Um, we're very lucky. Mm. Uh, we we biased one take of Polly's for the the wide that was um, really strong. And then we just found the, the take because my Amy's were pretty consistent. We found the one that fit best in timing wise, but we even had to stretch out the last few, like the last second or something of that to make it fit. Um, mm. We didn't time it out. In fact, you know, it's the kind of thing that I wish maybe we'd done a bit more of because we could have played it out for a bit longer or, um, but we were lucky it did hold to that point without mm. falling out of time. Yeah. Cause I know in that movie Moon where Sam Rockwell plays, sort of a clone of himself they had to wear like an earpiece in their ear so that they could get the timing exactly right because sometimes they'd hold on a a wide for like a minute as he 
played two versions of the same character. Where were you, Chris, when we were planning how we were going to shoot? I know, right? <laughs> that, that sounds a like a great sense. idea. Um, yeah. I think the way to do it now would be to do it with those wireless Apple AirPods because you can have them in one ear and it'd be like a click track. Or just have them have some sort of character trait that they both wear. Apple, <laughs> yeah, Apple. Like, uh, yeah well. <laughs> like in that new Edgar Wright movie, yeah. Baby Driver. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I remember actually rewatching Back to the Future Part Two, which has um, all of these sequences of um, Christopher Lloyd acting opposite himself, and and similarly several Michael J. Foxes, and um, I think what that that was kind of like they had. Um, automated dollies like there's some really amazing yeah yeah yeah, it's quite amazing like it's it's amazing like after you having just done something as simple as just a locked off shot that you put a a a split down the middle how yeah just watching something like that i was just in awe of how they how they would have pulled that off yeah just uh going back on that that final scene i just thought that was so great because there's um both in, in terms of the writing but also the the performances just in the way that you see that Amy sort of manipulate Polly and she's, this is going into spoiler territory now, but she's sort of saying like, oh yeah, you, you wear my clothes and you can go, you know, have all my, you know, live my life. And then you sort of just see the audience, at least for me, I sort of was like anticipating what was going to happen. And I, I almost, I felt the heartbreak like a split second before uh, Polly did. And it was just like so devastating that, that scene, but I think almost <laughs> necessary for the character to sort of realize. It's a strange yeah. scene because it operates on, I th- if, it, if it works, mm. if it's successful, it's it, it works, funny and <laughs> it works yeah. on a really strange level yeah. because I think a lot of people who have seen the film and have been with the film up until that point, they actually go through a weird counter internal narrative, uh, that where the heartbreak is actually the heartbreak that this film is fucking it up as in no they're not going to do that are they i can't believe they're doing this like this has been this has been such a great twin film and they're going to resort to this cheap and ugly trick and then the the, the lindsay lohan trap yeah and then gonna do the twin swap uh, really that was actually in one of our very early drafts it was Mm. always to have this thing of going of of have her be convinced to do, to do the swap. But in the very first draft, it was a ridiculous situation where Amy had overdosed and she was in, she was in the hospital and the only one knowing that she was dying, <laughs> it was really dark and it was of a different film, which is why we cut ended it. up, we, yeah, we cut it. And then for a long time, that confrontation wasn't in there and we put it in maybe like a month or two before we started shooting. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, she was, had overdosed and I think, uh, her manager was there and she was going the manager was trying to convince her you will just kill off whoever you are and then you can go off and and be her and it's like a really she doesn't want to do it but then she's convinced by this manager and the moment she says yes is when amy miraculously recovers (laughs) and And so she's so she's (laughs) so she's left with the knowledge that she was willing to do that yeah Um, without any of the benefits but without any of the benefits and that was kind of like a a, but it was too farcical it was too farcical but but we kept the core idea of it we kept the core idea of it because we really loved making a twin film and not having them do that but but you still but but, but potentially say to the audience 
oh, we're going to do that. And the audience going, oh, don't do that. Well, of course we're not doing that. That would never work. And yeah. they kind of verbalize how ridiculous that like is. The, yeah. You don't think mum and dad can tell us apart? Yeah. Like they've known them their entire lives. Like, but you sort of get that, what do you call it? Like the moral defeat or, you know, the moral compromise that Polly's so willing to make. Yeah. And it's just so tragic when, because she starts sort of stripping mm. down, you're like, oh, you know, it's, it's a painful, but also like one of the best scenes you know, to watch. I really enjoyed it. It has, um, it, it's, it's strange because we've had that kind of, it's echoed, whatever's going on there is mm. like, that's kind of like the final moment. It's, it's also operating hopefully on the level of putting to rest this idea that there's a silver bullet, that there is going to be someone who's going to tap you on the shoulder yeah. and go, no, take my place. Yeah. Take my place without having done any of the work. Mm. And it's been interesting, the, the process of, um, of having finished the film and, and getting it out there and, and being asked by young filmmakers or almost like what's the secret yeah. and how um there is no ha- secret yeah how 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 <laughs> defeat, how defeat, how, yeah how work. defeating it is to to have to to tell people oh it's 10 years worth of work mm. it's it's not like an overnight thing we've been trying to do this for like 10 years so yeah spend all of that time developing relationships helping other people out and Working it's, on it's amazing how quickly that conversation ends. People's at, at eyes glaze over. <laughs> yeah, that, they that do because they don't yeah. want to hear that. They don't want to yeah. hear, oh, you know, I worked for Palace Cinemas for seven years. That's how I learned about exhibition, like, yeah. and how we self-distributed the film. They just want someone kind of plucked you up and helped you out of nowhere. And mm. like, yeah, like Greg said, it's ten years worth of of experience and relationships mm. and education and work mm. experience. So that's yeah, it's it's funny because that in some ways being asked that is means that <laughs> they haven't learnt the lesson of Polly in, in the film. There's, yeah. no, there's no easy answer. You've got to kind of do the work. Mm. That's great. Mm. I love that. You know, you just mentioned that, that distribution piece and, and one of the things I find, you know, watching this film and, and also just looking at you guys' social media is that I think, you know, you mentioned that this has sort of been a three-year, three-and-a-half-year journey and I think what happens to a lot of young filmmakers is they make a film or m- make a short or something but who they are by the time the film is finished is drastically different to who they were when they started. But I think there's a, you know, you guys show a lot of maturity in that, you know, you wanted to get the film distributed and, and do it properly and do all the post properly. And I, I think the film's even got a soundtrack. And then, you know, you've submitted it to festivals, which is more of a, that marathon game. You know, you can't just do that on enthusiasm. That's sort of the, the work that, you know, the legwork of getting a film out there. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that process? what you knew going in and, and what you may have learnt throughout that distribution process. We've really learnt the whole thing. Should I start by saying at the very beginning we knew nothing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and it's, been, piece, it it's just been piecemeal. <laughs> We've just learnt step by step. Mm. And I think that's kind of the only way to do it if you're doing an indie film is to – you're not going to go in with all the information because you're going to learn it as you go. What are some of those key things you feel like you have taken away from this process that – that it's going to be hard again the next time yeah. uh, and that no one's going to come and say, oh, great, you guys are great. I'm going to make your film for you because that's mm. not going to happen. Um, so you need to look at what the strengths of what you can do are and build on that for the next one because the next one's going to be harder but hopefully even more rewarding. Mm. Um, I but think specifically y- in the distribution? Oh, in the distribution part, side? Yeah. Um, I feel encouraged that the kind of comedies we want to make aren't really being made in feature films. Um, so I think we have something special in that way. Um, I also think we're not making for the wide audience of Lion or Red Dog or something like that, but that's okay. 
Uh, looks like a film like Hounds of Love is a is a smaller film budget wise, um, and it still did terrifically on eight screens in the across the country. And I think that cinemas need content. It's about making content for the right audience relative to your budget. So we want to continue to make films, like you say, we don't want to wait seven years to make the next film and find mm. that we're not the same people as was when we started. Mm. We want to make films quickly for a smaller budget so that we can, you know, output more content for a reasonable price and keep ourselves entertained and, you know, keep the keep the work relevant so that it's not zeitgeist by the time it comes out. So it's still relevant. I mean, so it is zeitgeist, yeah. <laughs> sorry. And it hasn't slipped into nostalgia by that time. Because there's a, sort of an energy in your 20s that you, you sort of, that I think this film speaks to that you sort of want to capture, but it's like, you know, by the time you have all your ducks lined up, it's like, well, we've kind of lost that energy because we're no longer in our early 20s where in our early 30s and and none of those themes really resonate with me anymore so totally and when we started writing it we wrote Polly as 28 and I think I was 29 so I was probably pushing it at that point Mm. and I'm 32 now so when we were shooting I was already 30 so you kind of need to I thought you guys were a lot younger than you are yeah (laughs) thank you you can stay you know actually the funniest thing right because everyone's googled themselves you know I don't believe people that say they haven't is if you type in Alice Fulcher the first thing that comes up is Alice Fulcher age so people are very curious to know how old I am I'm 33 Almost in February, I'm 33. Exclusive scoop on the stories through the camera podcast. Anyway. I don't care at all, but I do think it's a consideration when you're writing to go. If we don't make this film for three years, then I, I can't write it as a late twenties anymore. Hmm. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, distribution. Yeah. So I think you know I, I feel encouraged distribution wise that there is um, a, a market and an audience for the kind of films that we want to make, but that and we don't want to stretch our budget too large to not be able to recoup costs. And did you feel like the the festival route was appropriate for you guys. I mean, you did quite yeah. well on a lot of the festival, Sydney, Melbourne, Raindance, there's a few more. Yeah. I mean, it's great for building um, publicity and word of mouth, mm. especially when you don't have a whole lot of money for publicity. Um, we had a terrific publicist for the release, Tracy Mayer as well, um, but they certainly were able to use the press that we got during the festivals to start to build awareness and particularly on social media, having something to direct people to and you're not just saying hey we made a film you've got news for them to update them mm. on it uh, I thought the festivals were ter- a terrific way of, of launching into the Australian market for us mm. and even there's just some photos on your Facebook of you and a pack cinema behind you I mean as filmmakers that like must feel like we you know particularly when you, your last day of shooting was a small skeleton crew when you're screening it in front of an entire cinema, I imagine that'd feel I pretty rewarding. Yeah, pretty amazing. I, we're still at that point where we're surprised if strangers turn up to see the film. And I think that was kind of the really overwhelming aspect of the release week is it went from other strangers here to see the film at, at particular screenings that we were at. So we were at least at these screenings to all of a sudden you wake up on the day the film's released and it's already screened four or five times around the country to my parents at one of the screenings. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and just to be kind of overwhelmed by, okay, this is that suddenly that platitude of, oh, it's not my film anymore, it's everyone else's film now, it's yeah. the audience's film. It's like, it, it is really because you have no control over it. Um, but, right, yeah, those I think I'm so proud of those yeah. moments too. I mean, we're, mm. we're still digesting the last year. Uh, you know, it's almost a year now since we premiered at Santa Barbara and I've been at the end of 2017 and the beginning of this year reflecting and, and looking back on those photos and I want to print them and make an album. I don't think, I don't want to be coy about it. I think they're amazing memories that I want our future children to see. I think it's a, it's a, a year that we won't be able to replicate mm. ever again. It's, it was incredible. Mm.
I'm very sincere, aren't I? I, <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's great. I just want to jump back quickly in linear time and just really quickly talk about post. Were, were there things you guys were, you know, so you'd shot this whole film and um, pieced it together over a period of time. How did you guys approach post? Were there things that you were realising when you were going through the footage that you're like, wow, there's kind of this interesting theme here that we hadn't really considered or... Um, or was it more, did you sort of just put an assembly together and, and trim it from there? Or were there sort of interesting discussions you were having throughout the post-production process? Uh, so our editor, Ariel Shaw, uh, she had been kind of cutting together uh, as we went. Um, and it was only, I only kind of saw the, the first couple of scenes just prior to going to LA in February, late February 2016, just so that we knew this is what we had already shot of LA and this is what we're going to need to film when we're over there in order to marry it all up. Um, and so from that, that led to one scene that's not actually in the script, which is the scene of Polly calling her mum from LA. That was just something that Alice thought of when we were over there. And so we just shot that because we could. I had. I love that scene now. I brought sound gear over, um, just like a very small sound kit, just in case we needed to get some sounds or just in case we needed some Atmoses or something like that. Um, so that was the one kind of thing that I guess immediately directly was changed once we saw the full assembly uh the rough assembly uh we kind of and this again speaks to what alice was saying before about the idea that you need to let people know that you're you're making a film if you hope to have any sort Mm. of life once it's finished um where we did a rough assembly and had hoped to submit to uh, a particular festival and we we, we was past the deadline and so I watched the rough assembly on a Monday and then on the Friday we heard from the festival and they said well you need to send it to us next week if you if you're gonna what if we're gonna watch it and so we basically got it from rough assembly to rough cut in about three days which I do not recommend the editor um, slept at our house she's a good friend of ours it's yeah pretty fine. I wasn't involved in the editing really at yeah all. Uh, but I think from yeah, I think when we first watched it, it was the same as any kind of rough assembly of any short that where there's that immediate sense of ego death in the edit suite, as we like to call it, where you're just yeah. considering all of your life choices and and maybe this isn't for me and maybe I should do something else and but on a much grander scale because it's I think we did <laughs> we did think, all right, well there is a film in there, but it was just it's just being confronted by the, the, amount, the amount of work. work that you have to do. But once we got to that point of of having, a, of, 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 of having a rough cut that mm. was I remember we watched it early one morning the, after being up until like 3am and we watched it started at like 8 o'clock in the morning and we watched it from beginning to end and we all kind of almost were on the verge of tears we did we, we cried like, oh. you can say it we cried we cried and we're like because it's like oh I think we made a film like yeah. there's a film here there's, there's an actual film here and I remember like we showed it to one of our producers and she was similarly surprised she was like we made a film. Like we were all kind of she shocked. She cried that too, we, yeah. and she was you're like, like, "Why? You're the she producer. Was, she yeah. was so Why funny. are you surprised?" Yeah, well, I think it was. She cried, and she was like, "I'm just so glad it's not shit." <laughs> yeah, she was the first one. Um, yeah, it's the. I guess it kind of speaks to all of like whatever insecurities we brought to, to the project mm. that we weren't that were beneath the surface. We weren't voicing to anyone else. Um, but from there, there was quite a, a long. I guess another couple of months that we spent continuing to cut and um, 
Because I think it's I think it's like oh, once you can sort of see the shape of it, I think that's yeah. probably when your discipline of you know being a freelance videographer comes into it. You're like oh, I know how to trim it down and mm. little tricks and sound design and, and the work but it's like yeah well for me it was actually the first time that i would worked with an editor so mm. um part of that was just for me getting used to that process but there was a, there's an accountability of, of working with someone else at the, at the edit stage and working with someone who you implicitly trust and whose taste you trust and you can um and ariel's very very good at um just uh, carrying out, d- d- doing the work, or doing uh, what I, doing what I tell her. I'm trying to say that in a different way. <laughs> no, she is. No, but she, she's yeah. very, she's very good at um, like humouring me. I think is the best mm-hmm. way to put it. But at the same, she'll do that quite. She'll do that quietly. She'll present present it without state, without any kind of um, uh, statement. And then I will say to her after I've watched it a couple of times, "Well, what do you think?" And then she'll go, "Well." Yeah. Uh, That's why I think I'm a yeah. better director than I am an editor because I've been told many times I'm very transparently projecting my uh, opinion on whatever state of the edit is that. Like I'll often be like, well... This is what you asked for, but yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's why I think of a better yeah. director. Whereas editors do have to sort of be. Um, yeah, actually, the one part of yeah. her life she has a good poker face because oh, like, okay. I, I know her personally, and she's the worst liar in the world. Right, and I'm sure she will thank you for for going on the record and saying that she's hilarious. Mm. But um, yeah, as a as an editor, she has a very strong poker face, and she yeah. would to do. I mean, mm. the, yeah, are you are much closer in the editor because I obviously I'm too close to her, mm. and I would have been trying to cut around shots where my pimples were more obvious and things like that. I'm way too self-conscious, so it was nice to be removed. Mm. But I think, yeah, the, <laughs> the, uh, after watching a bit of it, uh, I remember the thing that I felt was that's um, kind of stuck out for me on that first rough assembly and around that time was mm. it felt very claustrophobic and that's because we hadn't gotten any of like, I guess, the, the second unit kind of mm. stuff, like the... The establishing shots of, of various locations, or the house, or the cinema, the, house, the, the the cinema, or just stuff of her outside. So that did kind of lead to uh, an expanding of of, mm. of the world, I guess. Um, and that's so huge. Mm. I remember watching that film, Your Sister's Sister, and the the whole film is basically uh, that's Mark Duplass and Emily Blunt, and there's another actress who I can't remember her name. But the whole film sort of shot in uh, this cabin, but mm. and it's it could potentially be uh, a claustrophobic film but there's parts where they do very consciously sort of go out and get some exteriors mm. and Mark Duplass ends up on a bicycle and just rides around so you always feel like there's this larger world out mm. there and therefore you don't feel sort of really stuck and claustrophobic in what is essentially just a really <laughs> small set. And even yeah. just having wides, like mm. watching um, a pitfall of a few of the short films this week at Flickr Fest, I mean, the, the standard has been incredible. Mm. But just with a couple of them, you'd say there's a lot of handheld in tight shots mm. and you want to see the context around people, uh, which is which is really interesting. Mm. Mm. Which I think is what is so uh, great about what Ariel brought to the mm. brought to the table. Mm. So one of the one of the lines that your character Polly says in the the film is, "I don't really watch Australian films." What, what do you guys it's think so about the funny. state of uh, Australian films and particularly indie Australian films? I mean, we're we're at Flickrfest right now, and you guys are sort of being panelists or judges for judges. Yeah. yeah. Um, the funny thing about that line was, I was like, oh, "Is that a bit on the nose?" And we thought about cutting it out. We're like, "Is it too on the nose?" I like it. And people love it, so yeah. I'm really glad we kept it in. Um, 
I, I don't think the state of Australian cinema is, is as dire as people think it is. Mm. Uh, I would say that I like to, I'd like to see more comedies. Mm. Um, I think economy of storytelling is really important. Uh, the standard technically of the films this week at Flickrfest has been absolutely sensational. I think the the couple of things that lets them down is like, I mean the cin- cinematography is amazing, the performances are amazing, screenplays could be sharper, the writing mm. could be sharper, uh, and we could do it just a little bit less angst, just a, just a bit of light. I mean things can be dark mm. and still be beautiful. Like there's a there's one short film that's about a man um, whose mother's passed away and he's packing up her house it's an animation that was at sydney film festival as well mm. and that's really depressing territory but the way it's handled makes me laugh makes me cry it's beautifully handled mm. um so i think that there's still light to be found in the dark and i'd like to see more of that in australian cinema mm. yeah we do do a lot of like melbourne crime gang movies or you know just very dark reflective films but i think it, as you said it's sort of that light and shade that it's like it's okay to go there but it, you almost you need to care about the characters first, and you need to like them first, and you know having that contrast, particularly if you're trying to sustain a, a feature film. Totally, I mean, Animal Kingdom dreary. has jokes in it. Yeah, you mm. know, yeah. It's, that's why it's so effective. Is mm. because it makes you feel a range of things, exactly. not just heavy. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and they're also as as reprehensible as the some of those characters are. You can you can understand them, and you don't necessarily mind. They're they're compelling to watch mm. in that in. And that's why you want to spend time with them. So, yeah, I think a little, a little less darkness. I don't know. It's that's a it's it's a kind of strange line because it's supposed to function as both um, more so that Polly is someone who doesn't who who expects that when she makes her Australian film, people come and see her. Mm. Um, but she's not engaged personally with the industry. Yeah, and um, there was a so, so reflective on so many yeah, and young Aussie filmmakers that I've met. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. you know, we've had emails from filmmakers that kind of wanted like, a, to get advice on how we made the film, and then it becomes apparent they haven't even seen the film. Mm. I think what was really helpful during our uh, release um, was when uh, we released around the same time as Ali's Wedding, which is uh, it's a comedy as well. It's, it's a completely different comedy to, to our film with completely different scale, budget, resources. But, and we came out one week after the other and the default uh, setting of two Australian films coming out that are in similar territory would normally be looking over each other's shoulders going, what are you doing? Like, how are you taking away my audience? But mm. we went through Sydney, Melbourne, up to our release helping each other out on social media they were probably helping us <laughs> more than we were helping yeah. them but s- similarly I, I think we probably opened up um them to a, a, an audience that a different audience we we're both opening ourselves up to our different audiences it was such camaraderie and, and it was camaraderie and it was all and it really kind of made us um it galvanized us to to be trying to support as many Australian films as uh, see and and support and push as many Australian films as possible because if someone goes to cinema and sees Ali's Wedding the week before um, our film comes out, one, they get to see the trailer before <laughs> before the <laughs> film. Uh, but two, if they come out of that film having had a great time, they're more likely, I would think, I would think to say, "Why don't we do this more often? Why don't we go and see more Aussie films? Why don't we go? Why don't we go and see another Australian comedy? Because that was pretty good." 
oh, there's another one out next week. Well, let's do it again rather so than... instead of seeing them as competitors, it was sort of that high tide rises or boats. Exactly. Mentality. It's exactly that. Exactly yeah. that and big, also potential yeah. collaborators down the track as mm. you go. There's such talent out there when it comes to comedy here. It's not just Ali's Wedding. It's shows like Please Like Me or The Family mm. Law. And, and it's a whole pool. Like in America, you have Amy Poehler and Tina Fey crossing over and making things together and independently. And mm. there's a sense of camaraderie to it. And that's what we should be seeing more of. Mm. Rather than, uh, I saw an Australian comedy this week. I really enjoyed it. But I'm not doing that again for another year. Like, that's not how it works. Mm. I, I, I don't think. And I think it really, it definitely helped us. And Osama Sami, who wrote and starred in Ali's Wedding, he was, um, he really kind of, set the bar very high for, for us because he was winning like the critics award at, at MIF. And on that same night he was um, uploading Instagram stories of um, our poster in the foyer at the Kino saying, go and see this film. It's coming out. The day his film came out, he's in a se- his session and he's filming our trailer playing beforehand, telling his Instagram followers, go and see this film next week. Come and see mm. my film this weekend, but go and see this film next week. And I think, that's the kind of industry we should be fostering, not the one that that says, come and see my isolated island of a film that's glorious mm. whilst stay away from all the dross. That yeah. doesn't help anyone, I don't think. Yeah, well, I, I guess for me, that's sort of the, the, the hope of the, the podcast to sort of, as you said, all these disparate little groups of filmmakers sort of can um, be connected in some some way shape or form so just find a question for you guys um what, what's next for you do you have sort of a, a yeah so we decided that um remakes are like a really big flavor at the moment yeah. so we've decided to remake that's not me shot <laughs> for shot for the 2019 audience you know amazing mm. just going to update it because <laughs> we feel like yeah we're taking the pulse of the australian film cinema landscape and you're just going to reboot it, I yeah, reckon. Yeah, you know, for the next generation. Reboot later. it over and over and yeah. over again. If not that, we have started. Um, we started work on another feature, and um, uh, I think yeah, it, it's we've got interest in maybe doing some TV. It's the thing is that it has, it's it, the film has opened doors that we would normally not have, or we've actually had people emailing us, which was definitely not something that was happening before and um and it gives you the confidence to go we can do this mm. again mm. that we've started to build I'm glad skills. you've got that confidence no i do i mean i think we need more important um not more important mm. uh more experienced people that are probably more important than us uh to to help us on the next one definitely um mm. but also no one's going to pick you up at some point and do it for you we need to build on the the skills we've started to develop and to make the next one um, and that's the thing about, about filmmaking. It's not writing a poem like my dad's a poet so I can take the piss out of that yeah. or, or being a painter and it's not an isolated thing and there's a lot of uncreative things if you're going to self-generate work in terms of producing. There's really boring things that need to happen to get it done. So you have to kind of roll your sleeves up and go, all right, if we want to do the fun stuff, we've got to do the other stuff too. <laughs> well, next time you do, guys, I'd love to uh, get you back on the podcast and hear all about your misadventures then, maybe... If- that another sounds fun. Andrew O'Keefe yeah. or another uh, mural that you can uh, composite and tell us the stories about. So thanks so much for... Hopefully we'll have better stories than yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll only ever do our interviews by the sea in the Bondi Pavilion because it is delightful. Mm. It's been a pretty good... Uh, <laughs> in the ocean room. Yeah. In the ocean room. Come visit us. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. 
thanks so much for listening to the Stories Through the Camera podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. That really helps the show grow and uh, hopefully we can reach more people. And if you want to check out Alison Gregory's film, once again, it's called That's Not Me. It's available right now on iTunes and if you're in Australia, also JB Hi-Fi, where you can purchase it on DVD. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you in the next episode.